Okay, Grace Family Church, all of our campuses from, from Land O'Lakes to right here at Lutz to Carewood to Ebor to Temple Terrace and way down there in South Tampa and those watching online. Hey, come on, give a shout for all those. Good to have, good to have all of you with us. And also our new campus, some of you have been hearing it in Clearwater, we're actually having our first service. We're going to be once a month starting October 10th until the building is ready. We're, we're renting the Performing Arts Center in Largo. And uh, man, if you want to be involved with a brand new work uh, where we're going to need a lot of volunteers, a lot of people to help us build this campus and, and want to be a part of that team, you can text uh, Clearwater 81313 and we encourage you to do that. It's, we're excited about it. We just know that uh, there's a lot of people that need Jesus in Pinellas County and God's calling us there. And so be praying for us. October 10th, we're kicking it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hey, you know, this series, is, this is the last week of it, and, and the reason we want to do a series on uh, what truth is and why we believe the Bible is inspired in God's divine word, uh, it's sacred, it's holy, because we live in a climate, would you agree that maybe we live in a climate of antagonism regarding the Bible? I mean, a lot of us, man, especially if you're under 25, you go to a university, you're getting beat up every day regarding, you know, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Is it God's word? Or is it just old-fashioned? Is it out of date? Um, is it really God's word? Is it just a bunch of things written by men? Um, and there's those questions that are out there. And, and our goal for this series has been for the believer to give you a lot of evidence that you can know and, and have faith and trust that the word of God uh, is inspired and it is God's word. And for those who've had some doubts or not sure, or have been told some things that challenge the Bible, we wanna give you a little bit more uh, evidence to help you to know that we can not just have blind faith, but we can trust the reliability and inspiration of the word. So um, that's what this series has been about. In fact, let me read a verse. It's in 2 Timothy. Um, it says this, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. I love that first part, preach the word. You just need to know that it's not popular to preach the Bible in today's world. There's a lot of, unfortunately, churches that are caving into the pressure of culture, but we will not compromise, amen? We will not compromise uh, preaching God's truth, but speaking it with much grace and love because some of God's truth is challenging for people, but we're not gonna compromise uh, God's word. But it says when we preach, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. It says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires. Come on, everyone say their own desires. So here's what they're trying to tell us. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Basically, I'm going to find people that agree with me about what I believe about life and my lifestyle. I don't want to hear the truth anymore because it's bothering me. How many of you know the truth can bother you? Anyone ever have your wife deliver the truth to you? And you know it's true, but it bothers you? My wife bothers me sometimes. But I know it's true, and I just need to, need to process it. So here's what it says. They will turn their ears away from the truth. That means they actually kind of know the truth, 
They will turn their ears away from it and turn aside to myths. That's the environment. That is the world that we live in. People scoff at, laugh at, ridicule uh, the, pro- the proclamation and the truths of the word. So our, our goal is to hopefully give you a lot more uh, good evidence. And, and again, be honest with you, we're just scraping the surface. What Hal Mayer brought to you last week, I'm going to do a little review. Week one, I, I said to all of us on all of our campus, I said, you know what? We all believe in absolute truth. And absolute truth, let me give you a review definition. It's independent of what we feel or think. That's what absolute, it's independent of what we feel or think. It applies everywhere. It doesn't just apply in one location, it applies everywhere, and it doesn't change. It's timeless. What was true a thousand years ago is true today. And I, I use the analogy that we all believe in the absolute truth when it comes to measurements. I brought a yardstick up here, and I said, this yardstick is 36 inches. It's not going to change. It doesn't matter what you feel or think, it's 36 inches. 2,000 pounds will always equal a ton. 16 ounces will always equal one pound. Whether you believe in it or not, or feel it or not, or see it or not, gravity is an absolute truth. You can say, well, I don't think it is. It doesn't change it. Well, I don't feel it, it doesn't change it. Gravity is absolutely true here in Tampa or in Taiwan. And so we said we all believe in absolute truth. The challenge we face is the Bible claims to have absolute moral truth and divine authority. And that's where people get challenged. In fact, the world's model of moral truth, and even some Christians, by the way, is what we call is subjective They don't look at it as absolute. They look at it as subjective, which means basically, subjective means based on or influenced by personal feelings. You ever heard this one? Well, let me tell you my truth. Let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you about my feelings. And they they look at truth subject to those things. Their truth, uh, feelings, opinions, cultural trends, Majority opinion, that, that is subjective truth. And so that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where the challenges begin. And so I, I talked about that. And then Pastor Howe last week did an amazing job talking about the historical antiqu- antiquity of the Bible. It, it passes every historicity test more than any other ancient book of literature. There's a lot of ancient books of literature that we believe in, like Iliad and Homer, but the Bible has overwhelmingly more evidence and more copies than even those books, but yet people challenge the Bible. It's interesting. He talked a lot about how the Bible has not lost its original meaning. How do we know that? Google Dead Sea Scrolls, and and I'm not going to get into it. There's so much evidence of what he said. Archaeology confirms all the historical uh, archaeological discoveries confirm what the Bible has already said about a certain nation, an empire, the dates, the times, the coins. There's never been one discovery that is contradicted from the, anything in the Bible. But people don't tell you that. They say there's a lot of contradictions. And then Josh McDowell says something very unique about the Bible, that the Bible was written by 40 different authors. Think about that over a 1,500-year period, over three different continents. And all of these authors, human authors, had different backgrounds. Some were shepherds, some were kings. 
And what's amazing is the contents of the Bible deal with many controversial subjects, yet the Bible is a unit. Each one of these authors do not contradict one another. From beginning to end, there's one unfolding story of God's plan of salvation for mankind. How can that happen? 1,500 years, 40 different people, different backgrounds, different languages, yet one harmonious theme. Think about how that's, that's just unheard of. Think about 50 of us going into a room and saying, let's go ahead and talk about five controversial things and see if we can be all unified on it. It wouldn't happen. And here we are all in the same place. So again, that speaks to me of the uniqueness of the Bible. Today, uh, I want to talk just for a few moments, again, scraping the surface. I can give you probably 50 facts where science confirms what the Bible has already said. I'm only going to give you three or four, but there's many, many out there. I don't have time to cover all of them, but science and the Bible, do they contradict one another? Absolutely not. In fact, um, number one is the earth is floating in space. Before the early uh, 1600s, they didn't understand the earth and, and how it was up there. And, 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 and so Job says this, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, I understand the precision God had to have to hang the earth. In Isaiah 40, 12, I don't think they put it in your notes. They might put it on the screen. It says, Isaiah 40, 12 says, who else has held the oceans in his hands, who has measured off the heavens with his fingers. Who else knows the weight of the earth who has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? That the earth is in this perfect balance with a perfect axis and a perfect rotation that's not too far from the sun, not too close to the sun. It's precisely, it's precisely hung in such a way that we can have life. And, and the Bible talks about that, that the, the, the word of God uh, speaks on that. The second thing we see is, believe it or not, we know the earth is round. But in the early 1600s, they didn't. The flat earth theory existed all the way up into the 1600s. And yet way before that, way before that, the Bible confirms what science eventually discovered. And, and, and we see that in Isaiah 40, 22, God sits above what? The circle of the earth. God knew it. God said it way before man discovered it. Again, this proves to me that these things that, that God spoke of were inspired because man found out much later. A third thing, the oceans have paths in the sea. Psalms 8.8, 8, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. Now, they didn't understand that there were currents or these kind of currents in the ocean until the 1800s. Yet thousands of years earlier, God talks about the paths of the sea. Anyone know what the path of the sea is around Florida? It's called the what? The Gulf Stream. It's a path in the sea. It's a current that many people are very aware of now, yet the Bible talks about it way before that. How about this one? How many of you ever heard your friends say, I can't believe the Bible because it doesn't mention dinosaurs? Man, I, I, we've heard that. And, and let me give you a very simple uh, explanation for it. The, uh, the reason the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs, the word dinosaurs, because that word wasn't even invented until 1841. Now, if the Bible was written 
way before that, they would never use the word dinosaur. They would use or describe it in different ways as it does in Job, because the Bible does talk about dinosaurs. There's several scriptures that do. I'll pick one out for you in Job 40, 15 through 19. This is a good one to share with your friends. Take a look at the behemoth, which I made, just as I made you. It eats grass like an ox. See its powerful loins and the muscles of its belly. Its tail is as strong as a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit together, uh, tightly together. Its bones are tubes of bronze, like metal. He, his, its limbs are bars of iron. It's a prime example of God's handiwork, and only its creator can threaten it. It had no natural enemy because these were some big, bad dudes, right? Goes on and says, It is not disturbed by the raging river, not concerned with the swelling Jordan rushing around it. No one can catch it off guard or put a ring in its nose and lead it away, which is saying it can never be domesticated. Can you imagine having a dinosaur on a leash? This is my pet. Didn't happen. So this is, again, it speaks to the description of a dinosaur without using the word. So here's another uh, thing I'd like to share with you. Uh, that, that's just a little bit of the science. There's an, another uh, part that's, to me, even more amazing. Um, we all know what the word prophecy is. When someone makes a prophecy, they're making a prediction of an event that they hope is going to happen. Okay, well, the Bible makes over 300 predictions regarding Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, and all these different interesting facts about who he was, where he was going to be born, what he was going to do, how he was going to live, um, the manner of his death, the manner of his birth, all these. And I'm just, I'm just going to give you a few of them because what's amazing is all these predictions about Jesus were made hundreds and hundreds of years before they actually happened. How can that happen? How can every one of these predictions become absolutely true if it was just human authors? They had to be inspired by a greater force. Think about it. Let's just take a few of them if we can. The, the one uh, that many of us know is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. How many, anybody know where Jesus was born? Bethlehem, 700 years earlier. It was predicted. Another prediction about the Messiah. Buried in a rich man's tomb. He had done no wrong, had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Even the very specifics of the type of grave that Jesus would be in. That's how specific some of these prophecies are. And to me, one of the most astounding prophecies is in Psalms. It talks about how Jesus would die, the manner of his death. And it's in Psalms 22, verse 16. It says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. This is the prophecy of his cru crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Think about that. The practice of crucifixion had not even been invented when the psalmist wrote this psalm. It didn't happen until hundreds of years later where the Romans invented this form of 
death penalty. So here it even predicts the manner of Jesus' death through crucifixion, and it hadn't even been invented yet. I tell you, that's pretty amazing to me. And so, you know, we can continue on with all this other intellectual evidence, but I just want to share some other thoughts I have that have convinced me, because at one time I wasn't convinced, that, that the Bible is true and that Jesus is God. See, the apostles, and, and, and if you, many of you know, the apostles were the 12 guys that hung out with Jesus. And they hung out with him for three years, and Jesus kept telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And they didn't quite understand all of it, but he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And what's amazing to me is Christianity would have stopped and no longer existed if Jesus would have died and never raised from the dead, because then he would be a liar. His prediction of being resurrected, he wouldn't be God. Only God could raise him from the dead. So think about it. The apostles, many said that they were scammers, that, that it really didn't happen. They just went around pretending like Jesus was raised from the dead. It doesn't really match their behavior. Think about it. 12 men who all suffer martyrs' deaths. They die because they refuse to, not, to deny Jesus as being God and as being resurrected. No one dies for a lie. No one, that doesn't, that doesn't line up with the behavior. Every one of these, they saw something, it changed their lives, and they're willing to die for it. Every one of the apostles. They were witnesses, and their behavior uh, exemplified that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And then even the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I, I don't know if they got it, verse 4 through 7, do you have it yet? Yeah, they said that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Why is this scripture so relevant? He said, many of you are still living. Over 500 psalmists and many of you are still alive today. No one refuted in that day the resurrection of Jesus. You know why they couldn't refute it? Because no one could find the body. And you had over 500 people that saw him at one time. There's so much validity to the resurrection of Christ. The, the, the Jewish leaders tried to make it out to be a lie, but they couldn't uh, refute all the witnesses and the lives that were transformed and changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the apostle Paul in verse 14 goes further, and he says this, if he hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. Folks, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there is no church. There is no movement of Christianity. Because a lot of men die for good causes, but only one man who was God was raised from the dead, and that was Jesus Christ. That's why we serve him. That's why we Sing to him. He says, and if he, was, and if he wasn't raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's just one reason that swayed me. Another one, and, and again, uh, being a brand new believer. Again, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but when I started reading the Bible, really reading it with an open heart, I kept going, man, the Bible knows me. You know what I'm talking about? I would read a verse about temptation and I go, how does God know that I think like that as a man? 
And I would read another scripture about something. I go, how does God know I feel like that about pride or ego or money? The Bible knows us, doesn't it? If you read it enough, it will read your mail, amen? If you read it enough, it'll be like a two-edged sword that will pierce between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. It'll divide the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And God's word does surgery in our lives and it brings conviction to bring healing. God's word is never to bring shame or condemnation. It's to correct our lives because God has a better way for us to live. Amen. I mean, that's why God gives us his word. And so when I, when I think about the word of God, and that was in Hebrews, I, and I have to come to this conclusion, and, and, and maybe you have or you haven't. But if you have come to the conclusion, whether you're a new believer or been around for a long time, if the Bible is true, that it is God's inspired word, that it, God's divine authority, he has absolute uh, truth when it comes to uh, the morality of mankind. If the Bible is true, then there are some amazing benefits, aren't there, in promises. Think about it. And I'm so glad that it is true because now I don't have to hope or wonder what happens when I die. I don't have to fear death. I'm not, I don't want to die today, but I'm not afraid of death because God gave us a promise through Jesus that, that even when we die, we will live again because he gives us something called eternal life when we believe in Jesus. There are so many promises in the word of God that bring us hope that I don't have to fear death, that, that forgiveness isn't something I have to earn. Aren't you glad? Do you know that, that we can't earn our way to salvation, that God's grace and mercy comes through Jesus Christ, and that it's not about what I do, it's the gift that he gave us through Jesus Christ, his son. That's the hope and the promise. If God's word is true and Jesus is everything he said he is. Then think about it this way. If the Bible is true, it's the most amazing guide regarding marriage and parenting and finances and diet. It's the best owner's manual you'll ever have. It's our, it's our blueprint for life because the Bible, our owner's manual, is to benefit us. It's, it's, it's for our good. There are so many benefits and blessings if God's word is true. But also if it's true, think of it this way. If the Bible is true, there are other implications. And this is where there's a lot of emotion that will come into the room. Because there are some things that Jesus said that are hard things, that are difficult things. But if he is God and his word is the truth, not subject to our feelings or what we believe, but independent, timeless, and constant, and universal, then there are some things that Jesus said that can be very difficult even for believers to grasp hold of. You know why? Because we want to move it from the absolute truth into what? The subjective truth. Because then sometimes we let our feelings take over instead of trusting in the truth of God's word. And there, I can give you many examples of that. Then everything Jesus said about heaven is true. And we all say, amen. We love that part, right? Everything Jesus said about how much he loves us is true. Amen. 
We love that, don't we? Everything Jesus said about death is true. That it is appointed for man once to die, but then it says, and then judgment. So everything that Jesus said about judgment and the great white throne judgment where every one of us will stand before God is true. Then everything that Jesus said about hell is true. And everything that Jesus said about eternity is true, which means to me, it leaves all of us accountable to him who is the truth. Now in John 3, 16, we all love that verse. How many know John 3, 16? We've seen it many times on TV. Someone holding a sign, you know, back in the day, that guy had that big wig, that big, and he would hold up John 3, 16. Everyone loves John 3, 16. Because it's a wonderful verse, isn't it? It says, for God so loved the world. Aren't you glad that God still loves the world? Aren't you glad that God still loves you and me? I don't know about you, man, but sometimes I wonder why God loves me. If it was just based on me and my performance, sometimes I don't have a very good day. Sometimes I have a bad day. I have a selfish day. Some days I let my mind wander where it shouldn't maybe wander. And we struggle sometimes with sin. We all fall short daily. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, I love this, shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? But we can't stop there. Because verse 16 has more things in it. In verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How many know that Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but to save us? And that's the good news. But now we're going to get us some other things that will elicit certain feelings, maybe on all of our campuses. Because then it gets into the matter of choice. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, and again, it's a choice, chooses not to believe, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And then he goes into verse 19, and he says, this is the verdict. He's laying it all out. This is the verdict for all of us. Light has come into the world. Then he says something very difficult for many people to hear. But people love darkness instead of light. They had a choice to accept or to reject Jesus Christ as Son of God, as Savior, as holder of all truth. It says, people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. I wrote in my notes that people actually have to, the ability to suppress what they know is true to pursue something that they know is darkness. See, what they do is they choose to hear what they want to hear to suit their own desires the way they want to live their lives. And then the most radical scripture in the word that brings a lot of emotion to all of us is in John 14, 6, and these are the words of Jesus we're going to have to wrestle with these words because he's either Lord, liar, or a lunatic. John 14, 6 says, I am 
Jesus, I am the way. Not one of the ways. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus declares to be that absolute truth. But this is where if we allow ourselves, even as believers, we try to move it into a subjective realm. We begin to rationalize and we begin to go, but, but what about those people in Africa who've never heard the word? How do you know, number one, they haven't? And number two, we have to always believe that God is a just and fair God and everyone will have opportunity. But see, when we move into that subjective role in many of these areas that we struggle with, that's where we can get in trouble as a believer. So I just want to, for a moment, think about some other words that, that Jesus said. He, he says that, that I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. He goes, and my sheep, here's what he says, my sheep, they hear my voice and then they follow me. They follow my teachings. To truly, for us to be the, the believer God calls us to, believe, to, to be, he calls us to, to embrace all of his truth, even the parts that we don't understand. And there's parts that I don't understand. But God calls us to follow him. And then there are maybe on all of our campuses, those who have had doubts. Uh, God wants you to continue to ask your questions. He says, seek the truth and you'll find it. And, and then there are some maybe on our campuses right now that would say, you know what? I, I have so many questions, but something is stirring even in this moment in my heart. I sense something. I sense this, this conviction that what you're saying is true, but I have so many other questions. I don't know about you, but you need to put those questions aside and just let God speak to you in this moment. And I remember him speaking to me many years ago, not audibly, but in, in, inside that inside voice. And I remember him telling me, do you know, who I am, and I, and I said, yeah, I do, I do know who you are now. And I had all these other questions. But I remember I had to come to that place where I said, okay, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the savior of the world, and I believe you came and you died for me. And I'm gonna start right there. Step one, I'm gonna trust you to forgive my sin and to give me a new life and a new start. And I remember that was the start I took. And you know what? Even in that moment, I had questions. But I started with step one. Don't try to get to step 10. Start at step one. Amen? So every campus, bow your heads right now. This is hard to hear, but there's not many ways. There's one way. There's not many truths. There's one truth. That's what Jesus proclaimed. That's what he died for. He died because he proclaimed to be the son of God and the truth. And if God's just knocking on the door of your heart, just open it right now and on every campus, just bow your heads and you can just say a very simple prayer. You can, something under your breath that maybe I can lead you in. Jesus Christ, I believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. I believe you're the son of God and that you died on a cross for my sins and that you were raised from the dead to give me hope of a new life and life after death. 
So the best I know how, Jesus, I accept you. I commit my life to you. I ask that you empower me with your Holy Spirit. Lead me into all truth from this day forward. The best I know how, I want to follow you. And God, I pray for every believer on every, every campus. Lord, they know your truth, but there are certain parts of it they've avoided, they've ignored, they've compromised, they've rationalized. Lord, I pray that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would cause them to want to move a different direction, a direction towards your light, not to be comfortable maybe in the darkness they're living in, but you call them into your light, Jesus. They would forsake all and follow you today. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. Amen.